To that thing with James. I'm your host, James, and this is the beginning of the Halloween episodes. <laughs> My favorite holiday. Happy Halloween. Happy early Halloween to you. Let's see. This is, I'm recording on the 17th, so this comes out the following Friday, so I think there's going to be a couple weeks of releases before Halloween starts. I never really learned the knuckle thing where you figure out how many days are in a year. It really doesn't matter. Time is, you know, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. Time is simply a measure of change. And things change over time, such as the layout. I've I've changed the lighting a bit specifically for uh, this episode, and I'm not entirely sure how it's going to work out, but I hope it works out okay. Uh, you don't need to know all that. What you do need to know is that I have bonus episodes. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll get to what this episode is about, this particular episode. But first, quick business. Every week, I release an extra bonus episode at patreon.com slash thatthingwithjames every damn week. And you can get access to those episodes by becoming a patron, if you're not one already, at patreon.com slash thatthingwithjames. It's just $5 for a whole month, and you get, well, each new bonus episode and access to all of the previously recorded and released bonus episodes. Depending on how this episode right here turns out, I may be continuing the subject I'm covering in this, the free episode, or uh, if I happen to, you know, cover the entire topic in this episode, I might just read some Edgar Allan Poe with my golden voice. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like an audiobook with video to go with it. Audio listeners, there's a video version of this show that's just the same as the audio, but with video. So you can look at my beautiful face. Uh, it's on YouTube. And if you're already on YouTube and you haven't subscribed to this channel, please consider subscribing. Hit the like button, all that bullshit. And for all of you, kiss your mom and tell her hi for me. Sup? <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Uh, you can find me on social media. My handle is at James J. Asher. I'm back on TikTok because I got a phone that works now. Woohoo. Um, you can send me emails for business inquiries. Uh, if you want to be a guest or if you want me as a guest on your show, if you have a suggestion for a story or subject you'd like me to cover on the show, or if you are in need of advice you'd like me to give answers to on the show. I can answer you anonymously or keep you anonymous rather. So send me an email at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. Also, I have a subreddit 
r slash that thing with James. And I believe that's all the business. I, I, I feel like I always leave something off because I don't really have a checklist, but that's just kind of how I roll. I go to the grocery store and I get back and immediately remember, fuck, I forgot to get butter or something like that. Anyway, anyway, hi, how's it going? Thanks for tuning in. Let's get this episode started. So today, I'm going to be covering a, a, a historical character that I knew about but forgot about, but then recently relearned about. Like, uh, I was reminded of this character's existence. And this is one of the most bizarre, mysterious, enigmatic characters you will ever find. So a second ago, I mentioned I'm back on TikTok. And one of the things I like looking up on TikTok is occult stuff. Uh, I don't buy into all conspiracy theories and, and into all occult shit. There, there are a staggering number of absolute morons on TikTok. I mean, all, all over the internet, but especially TikTok. Um, but nonetheless, I find this stuff entertaining. Um, alchemy, cryptids, the occult. And a lot of my favorite horror movies are more like mm, thriller, suspense, psychological horror. So if I were to, you know, pick some categories to put into my favorite types of horror movies, um, it's not necessarily gore. Now, I do like the stuff where there's like murder and you know, someone losing their fucking mind. That's the psychological stuff. I really like it when someone loses their sense of identity, uh, where their sense of reality just completely shifts. Uh, someone becomes paranoid or murderous or fully possessed. I like... Um, paranormal, supernatural kinds of things. I like stuff that deals with uh, the occult, most definitely. Um, and I do dabble a little bit in occult stuff, but I believe I've talked about that on here before. If you, have, if you're, if you haven't been a, a, a consumer of this show for some time, Go back and look. I think I've covered some stuff. Actually, I think I, I haven't even completed the Chaos Magic uh, episodes, the mini-series I started. Anyway, uh, so psychological, uh, supernatural, occult, devil, quote-unquote, or, or just stuff that really kind of fucks with your sense of reality. The more... Um, the more the story makes you as the audience question your own sanity, <laughs> the, the more I like that kind of stuff. Um, because, well, reality or the sense thereof is, after all, a very fluid thing. Your perspective shapes your reality. Um, but with all these these themes, all, the, all these categories I have put forth, there is one particular movie that fits the bill. And 
I personally feel like it is underrated, but that's okay. That's okay. Because I like it when someone just kind of stumbles across this movie and sees it. Uh, it's a film by Roman Polanski. Yes, I know. I know. Um, Roman Polanski made this movie called The Ninth Gate. And it stars Johnny Depp. And it came out. Shit, I forgot to look this up. I think it came out in 97. Let me see. Uh, 1990, 1999, actually. Uh, it is a, as Wikipedia says, a neo-noir, neo-noir horror thriller film directed, produced, and co-written by Roman Polanski, whom, if you're not familiar, also made another sort of uh, horror thriller uh, called Rosemary's Baby. And he also made uh, an another neo-noir um, called Chinatown. And although that, I think that one might be considered a classical noir, but I don't know if the year in which it was made dictates whether it would or would not be a neo-noir. Regardless, um, Roman Polanski, um, it's a, uh, a conflicting character, that one. Uh, that's not, you know, the, uh, the controversy about him is not what this episode is about. Um, and, and this episode's not necessarily about his movies, but I do fucking love his movies. And, um, yeah, the ninth gate. So basically if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's so fucking good. It is about, well, see Johnny Depp plays a character. I, I forgot the name. I haven't seen the movie in years. Fuck. I might watch it tonight. Johnny Depp plays a character who is a little shady. He does some kind of shady business dealings. Um, and he mostly deals with uh, rare and antique books. Now, along his path, uh, he stumbles across these well, this one book that supposedly is a magical text, a very rare magical text. And apparently there are not just, there's not just one, but there are multiple copies of this magical text, this book. I forget if the book itself is called The Ninth Gate or what, but um, it is supposedly written by some satanic occultists and uh, in it are, you know, different instructions for spells and that sort of thing. Uh, images, um, sigils, that, stuff to guide you into performing magic that would ultimately open a gate to hell and also grant you immortality along with a host of other magical powers. Now, the thing is, um, the text is slightly different in each of these handful of prints that are uh, scattered across the world, mostly across Europe. And uh, if you can get your hands on all of the different types of books, then 
uh, you can, you know, tear out certain pages that are like the true page and you can put these things together and you've got your puzzle where, uh, you, you, you have the correct recipe to open the ninth gate, the gate to hell and, uh, get immortality, etc. It's a very good movie. Uh, yeah. Again, I highly recommend you watch it. Well, going back to the TikTok thing and the occult TikTok, hashtag occult TikTok, or whatever it is, someone made a little video about this book called The Triangular Book of Saint-Germain. Now, apparently, that book was the real-world basis for the books in The Ninth Gate, the satanic magical texts. I had no idea. And Saint-Germain, it kind of reminded me of something uh, it seemed a little familiar, but we'll get to him in a second. First, um, I'm consulting a lot of Wikipedia here, so I hope you're not going to crucify me for that, are you? Okay, so the Triangular Book of Saint-Germain, or the Triangular Manuscript, is an untitled 18th century French text written in code and attributed to the legendary Count of Saint-Germain. It takes its name from its physical shape, the binding and sheets of vellum. Oh God, I love that word, vellum. It just looks so cool and it sounds so cool. Vellum. That comprise the manuscript are in the shape of an equilateral triangle. The text, once deciphered, details a magical operation through which a person can perform feats of magic, notably the discovery of treasure and extension of life. So, scrolling down, again, Wikipedia here, structure and contents. The manuscript begins with a short Latin inscription mentioning that this is a gift given by Count of Saint-Germain, followed by an illustration of a winged dragon. All the text beyond this point, including the inscriptions belonging to the diagrams, is a cipher. Uh, there's pictures of this thing. Uh, a good place to start, of course, is Wikipedia. And it just looks so fucking cool. I want this. I want to do it. I want to, I want to, the book describes a ritual aimed at achieving one of three, let me try that again, three goals, discovering the location of certain valuable objects, that's goals one and two, and life extension, goal three. The former requires performing the ritual during a full solar eclipse, and the latter can be performed at any time, but... Excuse me, but it requires wearing a specific longevity amulet, which the manuscript then refers to in a diagram. Although this text is a part of the Manly Hall collection of alchemical manuscripts, Manly Hall's a guy who deserves his own episode, but he was an occult practitioner, just so you know. Like, 
he, like I think he died in 1990, so that recently. Um, but the text is part of the Manley Hall collection of alchemical manuscripts. It does not contain any of the usual alchemical content. It was likely meant to stand on its own and was only combined with other manuscripts post-acquisition by the Getty Research Institute in, I believe, Los Angeles. Uh, relation to other works, the ritual described in the triangular manuscript resembles those described in the Hepatameron, a handbook of ritual magic, sometimes attributed to Pietro de Abano, that uh, appeared around the 16th century in Europe. So, history... The two known copies of the triangular manuscript exist as Hogarth Manuscript 209 and 210. That is MS 209, MS 210. Um, both currently reside in the Getty Research Institute's collection, each with its own history. MS 209, dated at 1775, was made for Antoine Louis Moret, a French Freemason who immigrated to the United States in the 18th century. That's the 1700s. At one point, it resided in the library of Jules C.G. Favre, a French politician. And then Pliny E. Chase, uh, an American mathematician with an interest in cryptography, makes mention, and this guy was alive in the 1800s, makes mention of it in a lecture to the American Philosophical Society on October 3rd, 1873, stating that the manuscript was, quote, purchased in Amsterdam about 70 years ago, i.e. around 1803. End quote. Uh, it is unclear if he owned the manuscript, examined it, or had simply heard of its existence. French bibliographer, poet, and Rosicrucian Stanislas de Guaita, Guaita, how do you say that? It doesn't matter, had it in his library for some time. From there, it passed on to a certain Madame Barbe of Paris. Madame Barb. Hey, Barb? B-A-B-R-E. Madame Barb. <laughs> uh, do you not know Barb? <laughs> Maybe I know Barb quite well. Barb and I go way back to the hairdresser. Barb. Uh, and, and then it moved on to Frank Hollings, a 20th century London writer and antiquary. Another cool word. I like all these cool words. After 1934, Hollings sold it to Manley P. Hall. Much less is known about the other manuscript, MS 210. Dated 1750, the older of the two copies, it was once in the library of Lionel Hauser, a member of the Theosophical Society in Paris, and in 1934, Manley P. Hall purchased it for 40 guineas at an auction at Hauser's Library in Sotheby's. Format. 
one of the most peculiar properties of this manuscript is its physical shape, an equilateral triangle, measuring approximately yada, 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 elegantly bound in leather and gilded on the front. In European grimoire tradition, one frequently finds the practice of conjuring spirits into a triangle drawn on the ground. This particular shape, fortified by the divine names written around it, was thought to be a force, uh, thought to force a spirit to answer honestly and perform its duties without tarrying. By making the manuscript in triangular form, the author may have intended to emphasize the book's spiritual nature. Think about it. A triangle is a very sturdy geometry. Uh, and there's pictures here of this like silver talisman that's designed in a book. This one was um, created by Voland Jewelry that accompanied the book. It's a really cool looking talisman. Looks like something Alistair Crawley would probably be into. I'm, sh I'm sure he fits somewhere in this history. But let's go back real quick. The Triangular Book of Saint-Germain. So it's attributed to the Count of Saint-Germain. Who the hell is Saint-Germain? Well, he was a European adventurer with an interest in science, alchemy, and the arts. He achieved prominence in European high society in the mid-1700s. Um, Prince Charles of Hesse Castle considered him to be, quote, one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, end quote. Saint-Germain used a variety of names and titles, uh, an accepted practice among royalty and nobility at the time. These include the Marquis de Montferrat, Comte Bellamar, uh, Cheval Chevalier Schoning, Chevalier Schlong, <laughs> uh, Count Weldon, Comte Soltikov, Graf Zorgogi, and Prince Ragozzi. In order to deflect inquiries as to his origin, he would make far-fetched claims, such as being 500 years old, leading Voltaire uh, to sarcastically dub him as the Wonder Man, and that, quote, he is a man who does not die and who knows everything, end quote. His real name is unknown, while his birth and background are obscure, but toward the end of his life, he claimed that he was the son of Prince Francis II Rakozzi of Transylvania. His name has occasionally caused him to be confused with Claude-Louis, Comte de Saint-Germain, a noted French general, but that doesn't mean shit. So, there's this mysterious figure, Count de Saint-Germain. No one knows his real name. No one knows his origin. And although he says that he was the son of this Prince Francis II Dracozzi of Transylvania, no one really knows. There's no proof that any of this stuff is true. So, this is in the 1700s. Let's skip forward in time, shall we? Let's skip forward to the early 1900s. Here I'm going to read about the same, or maybe a different character. We're not really sure. Um, in New Orleans, in 1901, this is at some place called ancient-origins.net. 
I, I don't know. I'm sure this website's probably related to some fucky stuff, but this is one of the uh, better summaries of this particular story that I was able to find. So uh, the title is A Vampire in New Orleans, The Mysterious Case of Jacques and the Comte de Saint-Germain. If vampires existed in our modern age, it would be easy to imagine them in New Orleans, creeping from the shadows of the crypts in the San Louis Cemetery or prowling for victims in the unlit alleys of the French Quarter. In the Crescent City, beauty and darkness go hand in hand, and history steps forward to make itself known in the present day. Ancient legends of these immortal creatures made their way to America along with immigrants and adapted to their new land. One of New Orleans' most enduring vampiric legends has its roots in an old European folklore. But according to the stories, sometime in the early 1900s, a mysterious man arrived in New Orleans under the name of Jacques Saint-Germain. He was handsome, elegant, wealthy, entertaining, extravagant, mysterious, and a bit curious. His reputation preceded him, and he was soon a hit in the New Orleans society. The eccentric Jacques Saint-Germain is said to have taken residence at the home located at 1039 Royal Street. And I, side note, sidebar. I've seen this place personally. This is where I first heard about this. Uh, I love New Orleans so much, and it's a real damn shame what real estate is doing to that fucking place. It's killing the soul. Ugh. Back to the story. Saint Germain was apparently a cavalier and quite the ladies' man. He was frequently seen with a beautiful woman on his arm while strolling through the French Quarter or clubbing in elegant locales late into the night. He delighted in throwing elaborate dinner parties for the city's socialites, and his parties were highly anticipated due to their lavish cuisine, fine wine, and entertainment. Most relished, however, was his own conversation. Saint-Germain fascinated his guests with stories of France, Italy, and Africa, and even Egypt. Visitors were delighted and amused by his eloquent grasp of the English language, much like me, <laughs> thanks. They were a bit confused, however, when he spoke of events hundreds of years in the past in such precise detail as though he himself had participated. Many, guest many guests placed little value in the truth of his tales, simply embracing them for the entertainment value during their visits to his home. But not long after uh, his arrival to New Orleans, Saint-Germain claimed that he was a direct descendant of the Count of Saint-Germain, a close friend and servant to King Louis XV in the 18th century. His claim aroused skepticism, but, excuse me, but his resemblance to the Count was uncanny. Eagle-eyed guests noted that portraits never depicted the Count as any older than 40, the same age that Jacques Saint-Germain had appeared since he'd arrived in New Orleans. Rumors started to spread in jest that 
Jacques Saint-Germain may in fact be the very celebrated Count Saint-Germain himself, somehow rendered immortal and ageless. Jacques seemed to enjoy the mystery he had created around his persona, and neither confirmed nor denied it. Although Saint-Germain's catered parties were highly celebrated, the hosts said to have relished in his, uh, the host uh, was said to have relished in his guest's satisfaction of the offered feasts without partaking himself, often standing apart from the table, drinking from a lavish chalice presumably filled with wine. During dinner, he offered fantastical recollections of his adventures for his guests' enjoyment. The very strange habit of not partaking in meals at his own soirees, coupled with his remarkable resemblance to the Count of Saint-Germain, had some in the city guessing in good fun that perhaps the mysterious man was, in fact, a vampire. A sinister turn of events. These rumors took a sinister turn several months after Saint-Germain's arrival in New Orleans, when police were called to Saint-Germain's home to investigate the circumstances leading to a woman who had seemingly fallen from his gallery a full story above the street. His guest, a woman who was rumored to have been a prostitute, had in fact leapt from his balcony rather than fallen, as bystanders had originally surmised. While she survived the fall, she was terrified. People on the street surrounded her and tended to her needs while help was rounded. Hmm. The woman was taken to the hospital as soon as possible, and police suspected that she had become delusional. Uh, they, uh, you know, told the very well-known, affluent, and respected Saint-Germain not to bother coming in for questioning at this late hour, but rather to uh, please visit. Wait, what the? F this per okay, this person messed up this sentence. This is okay. So the cops thought this woman lost her shit, and someone got in touch with the count because there was a big hubbub about, and they were like, "Hey, dude." Don't worry about coming tonight. You have your party. Have your good time. We we trust you. Um, but we are going to need some questions just to, you know, get this hysterical dame off our backs. So why don't we come around in the morning and ask you what really happened? Okay. So, uh, so the police were confident that there was a reasonable explanation for what had transpired. And then the next morning, uh, Saint-Germain never appeared at the police station. In fact, to everyone's chagrin, he had completely vanished overnight, leaving the majority of his belongings behind. Now, legend suggests that upon breaking into his house, the police were cautious and in great anticipation of what they might encounter. On the second floor of the house, they discovered a series of open but corked wine bottles. And upon closer investigation, they discovered that the large collection of bottles were filled with a terrifying mixture of wine, along with large quantities of human blood. 
What? Jacques Saint-Germain was never seen again. He disappeared just as mysteriously as he had arrived. As one can only imagine, his contemporaries were shocked at this scandal, feeling both betrayed and fooled, and probably a little disappointed that the fun had come to an end. And also, another side note, um, there was a, a separate source I read for this story as well that this doesn't cover. So the cops did find wine bottles, lots of them, full of human blood, but also um, blood stains in the wood, on the floor, hidden underneath carpets all over the house. And I think there might have been like some secret rooms and shit. Anyway, uh, let's see. The question remained unanswered. And where uh, the question remained unanswered. So hold on. I'm losing myself here. Jacques Saint Germain or Count of Saint Germain? Questions remained unanswered, and this is where the legend of Jacques Saint-Germain as a vampire began to flourish. Had the Count Saint-Germain of the 1700s made his way to America? 20th century New Orleans socialites noted that Jacques Saint-Germain's resemblance to the 18th century nobleman, the Count of Saint-Germain, and the similarities between the two didn't end there. The stories of both Saint-Germain's closely paralleled each other, although the elder has a great deal more written material to sink your teeth into. So much mystery, speculation, and silliness still exists in writings around the Count's persona that, at times, one could almost conclude him from a fictional character, uh, or conclude him for, think he's a fake some of, the, some of this writing is just, I'm not a fan. But for the fact that many affluent leaders and prominent personalities of the time made note of his existence. So it's easy to think that this guy's just an urban legend. But yeah, a shit ton of royalty have written about the Count of Saint-Germain. So he was a real guy. And the mystery only gets fucking weirder when you read further back this Maybe the same, maybe a different Saint-Germain, who knows? Let's keep reading on this about Jacques, though. A letter from Horace Walpole, the fourth Earl of Oxford, to his friend Horace Mann, provides the first unchallenged reference of Saint-Germain. Quote, an odd man who goes by the name of Count Saint-Germain. He had been here these two years and will not tell who he is or whence, but professes that he does not go by his right name. He sings, plays on the violin wonderfully, composes, is mad and not very sensible. He is called an Italian, a Spaniard, a Pole, as someone that married a great for as someone that married a great fortune in Mexico and ran away with her jewels to Constantinople, a priest, a fiddler, a nobleman, the Prince of Wales has had unsatiated curiosity about him, but in vain. End quote. With no official birth records available, the true origins of the Count of Saint-Germain are a matter of some disagreement among historians. That's something that actually I think we're going to have to read about in the bonus episode. If you want to hear more about Count Saint-Germain, 
you're going to have to subscribe. Um, so yeah, this guy, Jacques or Count Saint-Germain, um, I feel like maybe he was part of the inspiration for Lestat, like as a character that he played violin, that he comes from Europe, uh, rather unknown royalty of some kind and has wealth that no one really knows where it came from, but he just happens to be at all the hit parties. It's all very Lestat, don't you think? And I tried looking into that, but I couldn't find anything. But I guarantee you. Now, I know Lestat, the name, is based supposedly on Lestan, which links up with Stan, who is Anne Rice's husband, who she was madly in love with, of course. Um, but I, there's a lot of stuff just about the character, uh, just a lot of similarities between uh, Count Saint-Germain and Lestat, I think, I think. It makes sense to me that that would be a inspiration. Well, I think that's it for this episode. So if you want to hear more about Count of Saint-Germain, go to patreon.com slash that thing with James and become a subscriber, become a patron, become a member of the Black Diamond Exclusive Club. Now, um, the the writer of this article that I was just reading, her name is Marita Crandall. Uh, she's been writing and storytelling since she was a little girl. She has always had a fancy for the magical side of life, um, making New Orleans with its very creative atmosphere a perfect match for this Yada. Okay, that's a long bio. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, hopefully you stick around for the rest of the story because it just gets fucking crazier. And I will catch you next week. I love you. Bye. <laughs>